This is Hypercritical episode number 12. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. My co-host, John Syracuse of Ars Technica and, and elsewhere, uh, insists that nothing is so perfect that he can't uh, complain about it. I tend to agree that that is true. I'm Dan Benjamin and uh, John... We'd like to say thanks to, uh, to two sponsors very quickly. We'll tell you more about them later. But uh, the first one is Sound Studio 4 from Felt Tip Software. And uh, the second is Worldview from Campaign Monitor. We'll get to those uh, during the show. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? Just dandy. Great. Been a long week. Uh, a, lot of, a lot has happened. Yeah, I think I've forgotten it all already. No, we don't need to talk about anything. That's good. And we need to talk about yeah, people have, last week's show. Are very, very uh, speculative about what uh, the third company is. But before that, there's follow-up. There's a lot of follow-up. There always is. There's a, a good two, three hours of follow-up. Well, I'll try to do it fast, as usual. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm, to- I'm so ready. All right. So last week we were talking about uh, criticism online and off, uh, more or less. And I thought last week's show was kind of a microcosm of itself, sort of in, in an inception kind of way, because I started the show talking <laughs> about how I had written this, uh, you know, this blog post about criticism and how I tweeted about it and said something that I thought was silly. Uh, and then some people took it seriously. Right. And that was kind of like an example where there's like a gap between like the intention of the person creating something and the audience's interpretation. So that was just a tweet, right? Well, and last week's show, we had one person who, took uh you know interpreted what we said in a different way that uh, than we definitely intended it to be so i thought we'd address that now okay let's do so, it yeah so this was uh i i threw out a uh, reference to an old snl sketch about sexual harassment somewhere in the middle of last week's mm, podcast yeah and see pop culture references like that are kind of risky because not everyone will get them right so not everyone has seen all the same tv shows as you and this uh, was an old snl clip if i remember it wasn't yeah, like it, 2005 or something it yeah. wasn't like a recent thing uh but either way, usually when a pop culture reference uh, doesn't land because people don't know what you're talking about, that's not a big deal. But in this case, if you didn't catch the reference, it sounded like the point I was making was exactly the opposite of the point I was making. <laughs> so in, in the show notes today, I have a link to the actual Saturday Night Live sketch that I was referencing. and It was, mm. a, it was a, a joke corporate seminar film about sexual harassment. Um, <laughs> and one reader thought we were endorsing sexual harassment. <laughs> right. Were, wait, that, were you endorsing it, though? No, that no. is exactly okay. the opposite of what I was doing. And it's also the opposite of what the Saturday Night Live sketch is doing. So if you go and look at the YouTube video, right? So even now, so now I've given you the context, like the Saturday Night Live video, and you're saying, oh, clearly uh, he endorses this video. So if you go to the video and you look at the YouTube <laughs> description, the guy in the description also does not <laughs> agree with me. He, he's, his, he's taking away from this, this video that he has posted the exact opposite point that I took away from it. So to further clarify, lest you go to this video and read the description and say, oh my God, he agrees with the guy who posted this video. I do not agree with the guy who posted that video. He, he said, what is it? I think I have a quote from him in here. Uh, I'm not going to quote him, but he basically said that what makes something sexual harassment is the response that the person has to it. And again, I think that is the exact opposite of the point of the sketch that the writers intended and certainly what I intended. The point of the sketch as I see it is that the reception of your actions does not 
determine whether something is sexual harassment or not. It's the actions themselves. And, and I thought this was pretty clear because like at the end of the sketch, they have the handsome guy. Uh, Tom Brady was hosting the show. He's the handsome guy. Walk up to a woman's desk wearing his underwear. And the woman's like, oh, hi, how you doing? She takes it just fine because he's handsome. That's humor's way of trying to tell you that that's actually not okay. That walking up to your desk in your underwear is not okay, even if you're handsome. And the fact that some people think it's okay, that's the joke. The joke is on them. Uh, so now that I've sucked every ounce of humor out of that sketch by trying to explain. Go, go watch it anyway. Go watch it. It is funny. It's an oldie. Uh, it's a goodie. That's what I was referring to. I am not pro-sexual harassment. All right. We got that out of the way, huh? <laughs> I, think, I think so. Yeah. Uh, now we'll I, get emails about how bad the skit actually was. I, I thought it was funny. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it, related to that, there's something I forgot to bring up, and uh, there's a lot of things I, I forgot to bring up in the last show, uh, is that uh, I listen to all of my own shows. I know a lot of people who are on podcasts don't listen to themselves or can't listen to themselves or find it painful, you know? Um, but I listen to every single one of the shows that I'm on. And yes, it is very painful to do that, especially like in the beginning when you're not used to hearing your own voice and everything. But eventually you get over that uh, and just deal with the Kermit factor um, and just listen. But the reason I'm listening is the same reason I talked about in the last show, that I want to hear what I'm doing wrong so that I can fix it. And it doesn't mean that I'm fixing it every single time, but it, it means that I, I want to... How do I know how I'm doing if I don't listen to myself? You know what I mean? And so in, in the course of listening to last week's show, I saw that I misspoke like 50 different times. Like I, I, I called something Amazon App Engine when App Engine obviously belongs to Google. I say PowerBook all the time. A lot of people do this. A lot, yeah, a lot but of I mean, the, you know, these are also these are nitpicky things that aren't really worth. Right. But this but well, I think it's worthwhile because I want to listen. Oh, you know, I'm not going to go into all of my podcasting flaws, but the only way you're going to get better is to <laughs> right, we don't have enough time how for good that. you are. Right. <laughs> is to listen to what what it's like to listen to yourself. And I do listen to a lot of podcasts. So I feel like I have a baseline level of, you know, uh, what I'm supposed to be doing, and what I'm not supposed to be doing. Right. And I guess if you really, if it really bothers you to listen to yourself, then then you know it's better for you not to. But I feel like it's a big part of being able to improve. It's it's like writing something and refusing to read what you write because you find it too embarrassing. That's the time when you should read it. You know, to learn from your mistakes. All right. Um, oh, and there's another whole thread for the criticism thing that I didn't get into. I'll just try to go through it briefly and skip the rest of the follow up. Okay. Because I don't want to talk about microwave ovens. I, I actually do. Oh, you do? All right. Well, I'll try to do this fast enough so we can talk about microwaves. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the things about uh, blogging online criticism that I wanted to talk about was the inclination of the author. Uh, like, given the same event, what what is uh, somebody's reaction to it? What are, they, what are they interested in writing about on their blog, for example? Uh, and your inclination, your angle on, on stories will give you, can give you a reputation. Like, for example, uh, Gruber is the most obvious one where a lot of people label him as a fanboy. Mm. And I think you've talked about this on the show with him because his inclination is when something happens that's related to the things that he writes about, he will look for – he will criticize the people who are criticizing Apple, basically. So if he, if he thinks something Apple is doing is good – he will find the people who think that that same thing is bad and explain why they're wrong, right? Now, I would say that's very accurate. And there, yeah, the Macalope is like that too at Macworld, the, uh, the ever-elusive Macalope who has a column. His is 100%, like find the most yeah. ridiculous, idiotic person who said the stupidest thing and just tear them apart. Gruber's is less humor-based, more serious. Like he'll, he'll, he'll talk about this, you know, he'll address the serious criticisms for people who are, uh, you know, 
more versed in the field, but occasionally he'll pick on the idiots too. Um, now I come at, come at it from the other way. Most of the time, if, if Apple does something, I'm looking for what is it about what they did that's bad, and then I will complain about that. Right now, you would think this would this would line me and Gruber up to be constantly at odds because if every time something happens, I'm going to say what's wrong with what Apple did, and he's going to criticize the people who are saying that Apple did something wrong. But in reality, we tend not to cross paths like that, and it's it's now, why most, is that? It's mostly because. If you were to talk to both of us about most issues, I think we would probably agree. It's just that he's concentrating on one side, I'm concentrating on the other. In most cases, when he does link to me, he'll agree with my criticism or maybe have one or two things to say with it, uh, say about it. But what, what the end result for the reader is like, oh, Gruber's a fanboy and then I'm a hater, right? So everything, you know, you hate Apple, you must be a PC. You know, I used to get that way back in the day. I don't get it that much now. I think people have figured out that I'm actually a Mac user. But big time when I first started writing is that you've clearly never used a Mac before in your life and you must love MS-DOS or, right. and, you know. But in reality, it's just two sides of the same coin, you know, where I'm, you know, what, what we choose to focus on doesn't mean that if you took those two pieces together, like the things that he says that, that Apple's doing are good, mostly I agree with. And the things that I'm saying that Apple's doing is bad, mostly he's agree, he agrees with. It's just where we decide to focus, you know what I mean? It's a, you're almost saying it's, it's sort of the same issues, but you focus on them in a different way. Right. And, it's, you know, he's picking on the criticisms that are stupid, and I'm hoping that I'm giving <laughs> criticisms that are not stupid. And the things that he's saying that are really good, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not counteracting them. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that he's wrong about that. I'm just I'm not as interested in talking about what's good. Now, occasionally, if you look at, like, my Mac OS ten reviews, I will go off on, you know, a couple paragraphs or a page or two about something that's really good. Uh, I do tend to do that, but it's just not my inclination, you know? It's not my inclination to say, you know, I guess I'm more into negative reinforcement than positive reinforcement. And again, this doesn't really apply in, to people, but to corporations and to analysis of the tech industry, uh, I think both approaches are perfectly valid. Uh, and I think it's unfair that either one of us gets the labels that we tend to get, that he gets labeled as a fanboy and that I get labeled as a hater who just, you know, complains about everything. Right. Uh, but it really just has to do with the part of the issue that we find interesting. And I like I read all the same things about people criticizing Apple and being stupid about it. I'm just not interested, as interested in explaining why they're stupid. Because for me, it's kind of like, well, if you can't see that it's stupid yourself, probably nothing I'm going to say is going to convince you and it's not worth my time to try to do so. But other people make different value judgments about that. And or they, you know, they find humor value in it or they can you know, they can be funny while explaining why somebody is wrong. Right. You know. Uh, that's just different ways to look at the world, I guess. Uh, but, but, but again, I think it's ridiculous that people get put into little corners and given labels based on the aspect of issues they decide to look at and not based on like what their total opinion is. Like if you were to, if someone who labels me a hater was to sit down and talk to me for five minutes, they would realize that I love Apple and give them thousands of dollars and have wonderful things to say about lots of things that they do. Uh, it's just not what I choose to write about most of the time. Right. Um, My microwaves. Yes. We'll skip over the rest of this and go right to microwaves. What do you want to talk about about microwaves? I have a lot of, snippets here from feedback we've gotten well yeah i mean we we got a, we got a lot of feedback surprisingly i think we got more feedback that in in, in one way or another uh, focuses on microwaves so we might get we might get something where the, someone would write in and say oh john you're wrong about this but i agree with you about this and then at the end p.s i live in x country in europe and we have everybody i know has a microwave i have a microwave i've had one since i was in grad school 
And then for, for every one of those we get, we'll get another one that says, not only don't we have microwaves, we don't have central heating and air. That's a fair representation of it, right? Yeah, a lot of people were trying to gather up stats, which I found yeah. useful, but I don't really care that much about who has microwaves or don't, you know, especially since these stats are from different years and not really comparable to each other and yeah. stuff like that. So it, some of the information that we got was basically that the U.S. really does have a lot of microwaves per capita right. and other other similar westernized countries have still less. have high percentages, but slightly less. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we got you know your people coming in, the people who are going to tell us that they have a different kind of eating style and diet plan, and mm-hmm. that it's better than what we do. You know, I mean, we we've to to be completely honest, we use being being on the kind of diet that we're on, we use the microwave very in a very limited capacity. And I realize most of what we use it for these days could prob I, we could probably do without it. We could probably have no problem without a microwave at all. Uh, these days, the, a few years ago, you know, we were definitely heating up, heating up stuff in there. But you know, what happens if you want to quickly steam some vegetables? You just throw them in there. It's convenient, you know, something like that. But apparently, the a lot of people are are they think of microwaves as being a distinctly American phenomenon, even though they they may exist in some number in their country or in their uh, their area or in in their circle. They think of it as being a very American thing and, and sort of typifies everything that's wrong with America, the instant gratification, the instant, uh, you know, the ease of use, the disposable philosophy that they perceive perhaps correctly for many Americans to have. And the poor quality of the food, like processed right. food, processed you know, it's usually usually what you're putting in the microwave is some horrible, you know, not that that necessarily has to be the case, but it's associated with those actions that the, right. the worst processed foods and frozen foods, you know, you can heat them up in the microwave. Right. Uh, that's not to say that that's what, you know, that's the only thing a microwave is good for. You could use it to boil a cup of water. It's a, right. you know, it's a versatile device. But yeah, I, I like that somebody, I think somebody from Hungary or something had noted that a lot of people in his country, uh, say that using a microwave is unhealthy because it damages the molecules and causes cancer. Right. It's kind of like one of those things you get when there's any kind of new technology, someone somewhere will become convinced that it's, you know, carcinogenic and, you know, right. some, some reasonable percentage of the time they're right. So that sort of reinforces yeah. the, uh, uh, but yeah, it, what it's interesting that when that type of thing can take hold, uh, in a widespread manner, uh, you know, the way he was trying to express it here that he, that this is, you know, not just one or two kooks, but a lot of people actually believe this, that it damages the molecules and causes cancer because it uses radiation or whatever. I don't know. Uh, no, matter what you, uh, no matter what new technology you have, someone will, will believe that about it. So we got that, and we got some email from people who, what's this guy said? He doesn't eat box foods, plans his meals, and the meal times are scheduled. So that right. means you don't, you don't need cooking time to be fast because if you know when you're going to eat, you just plan ahead of time. and. Sure things on the stove and the oven and, and a, lot, like, a lot of european countries they get three four hours in the middle of the day for their lunch they only I don't think they know, get that anymore they get you know three months uh, vacation they get free health care yeah. it's always sunny it never rains it's always 72 degrees which is uh, 18 degrees celsius or whatever and uh, you know they live they, they all drive lamborghinis you know they, they're they're significant to others, are beautiful just like they are, and uh, there's no crime. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much everywhere except America, is what our emails tell us. And that's they don't use microwaves. Those, uh, that's kind of one of those ways where you can hack your own life, but if you get rid of a microwave, you're removing the option 
for having food sort of in a rush on the go and that forces you to plan ahead. Yeah. That could maybe make you slow your life down or whatever. This mm. is you know, turn, turning into a Merlin tip show. But the la- I, I, can't, I can't remember the last time that I that I heated, like, a, that, like I'll put a meal into the microwave. It, it's probably been years since I've done it. But I'll tell you what, I, it, I it, use a, I use it steams broccoli oh. better than anything else I know of. Yeah, but don't don't you use it for reheating? Because I have tons of leftovers, and yeah, I, I it's use great for reheating. But it depends. It depends. Like I don't like to taste a chicken out of a microwave if it's reheated. I've, I'll use a toaster oven. We we actually yeah. do a heck of a lot of, to- of uh, reheating in a in a toaster oven. Yeah, we need to. I need to put that on topic list. The why I hate all toasters. But yeah, toaster for anything that needs to be crispy. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about a toaster oven on a show. We could do. I could do. I could talk hours about toasters. I don't know if that's a whole show, but I, I, know, I, I think it will be. I think it'll be our best show. Our best show, Why All Toasters Are Horrible. Yeah. Might have to do a series on that. It's, not, right, so, it's can, not something we want to try and squeeze into just one show. We can be done with the follow-up now if you want. You I would love that. that I skipped, but that's Because we, we have a really great topic. Yes. Really excited about this one. And by the way, we just want to mention that it is opening day in the uh, Major League Baseball world today. You just want to mention that. I don't care. I know you're a big fan. Not a big fan. But insofar as I am a fan, I am a Yankees fan. Just to put that out there. It doesn't matter. Let's get some, let's get some more hate mail about yeah, that. Well, you will. I'm a Phillies fan like all, all good Americans should be. Mm-hmm. All right. You ready for the main topic? I'm ready. Hit me. Oh, wait. So, before we say it, let's do, let's do a sponsor. All right. Uh, we actually we have a couple of great sponsors. Uh, this The first sponsor that we have is Sound Studio 4. I've talked about them before. Uh, this is by Felt Tip Software. You can record, edit, and produce your audio with Sound Studio 4. It's an easy-to-use Mac app. We have used this app here for years. I, I used to use it exclusively to record everything that I did, and uh, I still use it whenever I'm not doing some kind of really super intensive multi-track recording. It's great for, for simple, straightforward recording, and, uh, and it's really easy to edit with. And you can export to all of your favorite formats from Wave, AAC, MP3, even this Og Vorbis that uh, John Syracuse likes so much. Um, and it's available from the Mac App Store. You can go check it out today. You can also go to felptip.com slash SS, and it'll take you right to Sound Studio 4. We love this app. This is an app that I've used, again, for years. Highly recommend that if you're thinking about recording anything, go check it out. Great Mac app, too. Just it has that Mac... Uh, you know, it works the way you want it to work. It's the replacement for Sound Edit 16. You remember that? <laughs> I do. What a great program that it was. was. And for one. years, I was looking for the, you know, all right, so Sound Edit 16 is old. <laughs> what is it that replaces it? Yeah. I want a thing that shows me the sound, and I chop it up with a little cursor. And, you know, like I had basic needs, and it took a long time on, in the Mac OS X era before I found Sound Studio. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to be a genius or go to a class at the Apple Store to figure out how to use it. You can just launch it and record something and... and Edit it and hit delete and hit save and it works. Yep. And Og Vorbis, I know that's big for you. You know, you're miscategorizing your like if you're gonna make fun of me for being nerdy, you gotta figure out what I'm nerdy about. That's like a sort of a, you know, free software, neckbeard kind of thing. I, I don't think I've ever even had an Og Vorbis file on my hard drive, I, I know. let alone let I alone play it on the funny, It's one. funnier that way. No, it would be funner if you did like DRM encrypted AAC files, like all of my audio has fair play. And you still haven't talked about how you encrypt. You still haven't talked about how you encrypt. Yeah, I know. Well, this they always get kicked off the follow up, you know. Right. Wait until after Lion's released and we can have a whole show on encryption. Mm. Yeah. So this show though, now the big reveal. 
20 minutes in, what, what are we talking about today? So last week when we were going through the topic list in the, in the tail end of the show, you were looking at these three ones that I recently added that sort of fit the, the format of what's wrong with blank, where blank is some well-known company. Yeah. And since I didn't think a single one of those companies I had enough to say about to fill the whole show, we're going to do three of them today, and I'll try to get through them uh, quickly. And, and what's wrong with, like, obviously, there's lots of things wrong with everything, right? So we're trying to look for the most significant challenge that these companies have. And I don't think the things I'm going to pick are particularly, like, people are going to be blown away by them because no one ever thought of them. They're the obvious things that are wrong with these companies. But I think it's worth talking about, like, the biggest challenges of these, of these well-known companies because right. the discussion will be interesting. If not the, you know, oh, my God, this is amazing insight that this is what's wrong with this company. Um, and, and in that spirit, I'm going to let you, as usual... Uh, try to guess what you think the most significant challenge, or what I'm going to say is the most significant challenge of these companies. So we're going to start with Google. Mm. I feel like this is a pretty easy one. What do you think? Uh, you can give your opinion, or you can try to guess what I'm going to say. What is the most significant challenge to to Google as a company at this point? When you say challenge, you mean the thing that they need to do. Well, it's like, what's wrong with them? Like, What's wrong know, with them? Are, are, are they doing everything perfectly? Do they have some sort of problem? What's wrong with them? All these things. What's wrong with the company? If you have to pick one thing. And, and again, these are all companies that are massively successful, that are really awesome companies that you know are, by any standard, doing almost, almost everything right. And that's why it's interesting to find the one or two things that they're doing wrong. You know, I don't think it's possible for me to guess what you're going to say. So why don't you just give your own opinion? I'll give my own opinion of, of what I think is the the thing that that strikes me as being the most wrong with Google is that I, I don't ever feel like they have a single focus or a single track that unifies all of the different projects, products, and and focuses that they they need a focus. If you look at what Apple is doing as as a company that has a supremely sharp focus, and compare that to what Google's doing, Google has so many different things going on, and it seems to me that that they suffer because of that. They're sort of a, if have you ever heard the term monkey mind, no, you ever I heard that term. It's a great, we could talk about that at some point. Monkey mind is if you imagine a little monkey running around in a, in a jungle somewhere, he runs over, he looks at the ants running around. Then he goes over, climbs up the tree, bounces off the tree, jumps onto the other tree, jumps off his uh, brother's back, does a backflip, rolls around on the ground, looks at the ants again, grabs some seeds from a tree and can't get his hand out of the tree, drops his, you know, this is the, this is the thing that a monkey does. He's never, he's never focused. And because he's never focused, these things that they do, they can, they can be successful, like Google's have been successful, but they also have these very strange and, and in some cases, huge missteps, these huge uh, mistakes that they make. And it, it doesn't seem like they have a single unified vision. So that would be what I say. So what do you say? So that's, it's interesting that what you ended up talking about is what I'm going to end up talking about too, but coming at it from entirely different directions. So I'm going to start with what I think most people would say, if you, especially if you're talking to a business analyst uh, on the business side, would, is wrong with Google. And it actually went around... Uh, the web, you know, like last week or so, it was being passed around the, the blogs uh, and the show notes linked. I linked to uh, to Gruber's link to the the story in the New York Times. Uh, and a business analyst would say that what's wrong with Google is that if you looked at its balance sheet, you'll see that it derives ninety six percent of its revenue from advertising. Mm-hmm. And just on a plain business percentage, you're like, well, that's not diversified enough. Like you're putting all your eggs in one basket, even though you have all these different things that you do. Like, so, so your, your uh, complaint was that they're too scattered and not focused on anything. Right. And then this complaint on the other side is on the business side that they're too focused their balance, on the wrong their balance sheet. Yeah. Their balance sheet 
is is not diversified enough. They're making all their money from one thing, and that makes them vulnerable, extremely vulnerable to any sort of perturbance in the advertising world, right? But I'm not going to say that's the, the, the thing. That's not the root problem. That's like a symptom. And the reason for that is if you think about Apple, if you try to apply the same yardstick to them, their their income looks diversified if you chop it up by product line. But if you just look at it in terms of like how they make their money, they make a similar percentage, like not as high as 96, but like 90% they make from hardware. No one really categorizing hardware and then software and other services. They make about 90% of their, of their revenue from hardware. You say, oh, they're not diversified. Well, you say they have seven different hardware products. They're very diversified. They have iPods, iPhone, very nice, even distribution. They, they can introduce new product lines all the time, and those quickly grow to become significant revenue sources. So it shows they're not vulnerable to, for example, weakness in, in the MP3 player market. Right. If they had just had the iPod, that market has sort of gone down in terms of you know uh, its importance, its growth has, has stagnated, and uh, the margins are not as big as they used to be, right? But they, they diversify. But it's still hardware. And if you said the same thing about Google, you make 90%, 96% from advertising. I said, well, there's all sorts of ads. There's mobile ads on people's phones. There's ads in search results. There's ads on, on the products that we have, you know, on the sidebar of all of our popular products and stuff like that. So I think the too much of your revenue from one source thing is a red herring. Uh, because Google would just use the same argument that Apple does to say that they actually are reasonably diversified. And I think advertising and hardware are just two vague terms to say that you're not diversified without knowing more details. But the real problem, I think, is related to not, not that they have so much of their money uh, coming from one thing, but what that one thing is. And since the one thing is advertising, I think their, their, root, problem, their root problem is they have too few customers. Uh, that sounds silly where, you know, everybody uses Google and it seems like they have, you know. So what do you mean qualify that? What do you mean to too right. few? But, but customers, you know, the people who are using search are not the customers. It's the old uh, cliche. I have no idea who said this and I tried to look it up and could not track it to the origin. But basically, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. Right. So everyone who's using Google for search, they are not Google's customers. Google's customers are the advertisers. And there aren't that many advertisers in the world compared to the number of people in the world. That kind of makes sense. Like if, if there was, you know, 90% of the world were advertisers, who would they be advertising to? There is a limited number of people who have goods and services to advertise, and they want to advertise them to millions and millions of people. So Google's actual customers, the people who pay Google money, are advertisers, and they're not, there aren't a lot of them. Now, let's compare that to Apple, where Apple's customers are the customers. They want to make you know, a little hardware widget they can sell you and they want to make it appealing to the customer and the customer gives them money directly. It's a direct relationship between the person with the money gives them, gives Apple the money and they get the piece of hardware and Apple makes, you know, 90% of its money from that hardware type of thing. Uh, and But Google, on the other hand, is motivated to make things that advertisers like because what happens to them is advertisers hand them money and they hand the advertisers an opportunity to sell their goods in a way that they like. Now, obviously advertisers like lots of customers. So there's an indirect link to making customers happy, but it's kind of like advertisers give us the money and in exchange, we give the advertisers what they want and what they want is access to a lot of customers. Therefore, we have to make something that a lot of customers will use. Therefore, we make something the customers like. Hmm. That is a much more indirect link than Apple has to make a piece of hardware that a customer is going to give them money for, you know? And, and this makes me think that it has something to do with why so many Google products fail. This is the monkey mind thing, I guess, right, where they make right. you know all sorts of little things. They make Wave, they make Orkut, they make Buzz, Google, Google Buzz. I mean, they're they're doing all sorts of things all over the place, right? You know, but their batting average is not great. When they have hits, they have hits, but the, but their you know the batting average is not that good. 
certainly not as good as Apple's, where when Apple comes up with something significant, it's a big story if it fails. So Google's just doing, you know, going in a million directions at once. I mean, just I can't even just try to think of all the things that Google is doing with like scanning books and self-driving right. I mean, every, cars. Yeah, and, self-driving cars is an example, but that you know everything that they're doing there and. You know, I mean, I understand they've they've got more money than most other companies do. So why not invest a little bit of that into many different areas? But even in in the areas that we know that they focus on, like, for example, web applications in that in that web application space, they still have a lot of, uh, you know, they've got a couple big home runs, like, for example, search and mail. But they've had a whole lot of uh, fouls. Yeah, or mediocre things like Google Apps and stuff like that. And the thing is, I think the reason that it comes is because Google's expertise is not in building products that consumers like. Google's expertise seems to be in monetizing its hits, right? So they make tons and tons of products for consumers, but they're not great at it. So their average is not good. But when they get a hit, boy, are they really good at, at monetizing that thing and making money off of it by selling access to it to advertisers, right? And so I, I think that is that sort of encapsulates why Google acts the way it does, why they seem to be monkey-minded, uh, why the fact that they're re- driving all the revenue from advertising is bad. It's not because it's, it's not diversified. It's because being in the advertising business is, is, you know, it's a bad relationship with consumers. Now, obviously, it's, maybe it's a good relationship with advertisers. If I was an advertiser, I'd be saying this is not a problem for Google, uh, and maybe someone has to serve the advertising community. But what it leaves Google vulnerable to is someone who's better at making these same kind of services, eating their lunch by making a service that people like better than Gmail, for example, and finding some way to get money from customers for it. Now, again, that's, that's a challenge. And the, when we talk about Apple in the online world, we talked about how it's really hard to get money directly from consumers for things that you do online. It's possible, but people haven't really cracked that code yet. Maybe it has to be a cultural change or you know, a, a, some change in expectations of the consumers. So for now, Google is, is the king. But I would say that the fact that it has so few actual customers leaves it a possibility of being held captive by those customers. That They spend too much time serving the advertisers and not enough time serving the consumers because that's just a second-level concern. Mm. That's Google, Facebook. Yeah, I didn't. Facebook. This is an interesting one because if you ask people what they think is wrong with Google, maybe they'll come up with like the privacy advertising stuff. Maybe right. if they're in the the business, they'll talk about the revenue. But Facebook, people will have tons of complaints about. Oh yeah, that have that have little to do with I think the company and more to do with when something is popular, everyone's got some complaint about it. No. Well, what would be some of the big complaints you'd expect to hear about Facebook? Obviously, privacy is one of them. I I wouldn't even go with that. I would say the first one would be for like Joe off the street that that they're annoyed by something in Facebook. And God knows what it would be. They don't like how they changed the redesign. They don't like how you can't reply to this thing or how someone can delete your comments or how you can't delete that. Like little petty things that really aren't what's wrong with the company. But just just from the fact that once you have millions and millions of people use something, everyone's going to have a complaint about it. It's kind of like back in the days of Windows when – Everyone had a complaint about Windows because everyone had to use Windows. And yes, right. Windows was you know, not great. Do you use also, Facebook? I, I signed up for Facebook way back when. So when you have an account. You just don't use it. I just do not use it, which is bad because a lot of people who do use it you know, are sending me things and then getting upset because I'm not replying. But I, I log on to Facebook maybe once a month yeah. and then you know, quickly retreat. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the way I think I'm going to come at this Facebook thing is to uh, do one of the, another one of those let's go back in time type of things. 
and try to compare Facebook to uh, some similar phenomenon. So uh, let's talk about the history of PCs very briefly. So way back when, you know, nobody had, no, no individuals had computers and then the personal computer stuff started to happen. And very in, the, in those early days, you had a lot of different competitors sort of jockeying per position. Like you had things that probably young people have never heard of today, but like there was the homebrew thing where you'd try to make your own computer and there was the Altair and the yeah. Commodore. Texas Instruments, Tandy, Radio Shack used to have make computers. You know, there was Atari, all sorts of things. It's sort of jockeying for position and like, you know, no, now we're the king. Well, now I hear there's a great new, uh, you know, Commodore Pet coming out. But then the Tandy is, is, is a contender too, right? Lots of trading places, lots of, you know, activity going on there. But very few people had computers at that stage. And when you were like the winner, like you had the best computer at the, you know, what was it called? Was it Comdex back then? Whatever, whatever the you know the West Coast Computer Fair with an E at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you you had the best in show, but you didn't really win much. Like you got you got the biggest slice of what was a really really tiny pie. So there was lots of motion uh, back then. You know, in any sort of early industry, you expect before there's any sort of consolidation. And then you had sort of like the maturing of the personal computer, and you had the Apple II versus the IBM PC, and eventually the the Mac. And that was kind of like where the bend in the hockey stick was. You know, in the graph mm. where you went from really nobody has computers and nobody really cares who had the best, you know, computer this year because who the heck, what kind of person owns a computer in their house anyway? Just, you know, super nerds, right? To the point where now at least people were going to have computers at work and they were thinking about getting one for them at home. It's, it's, it's really, you know, where that, where that line kinked. And uh, unfortunately for many people, but fortunately for Microsoft, they were the one who just happened to be on top at that crucial point when the line kinked, right? So they didn't just get the biggest piece of a tiny pie. They got the biggest piece of a pie that was growing humongously. And the network effect kicked in for them. And, you know, when, when, you know, when everyone you know has, has an IBM PC compatible thing, let's, we're going to put aside the part of IBM dropping the ball by giving Microsoft the uh, license for the software so they right. can license it to everyone else. But uh, we could just say Microsoft slash IBM PC won because as soon as that network effect kicked in, they were the winner at that particular point, and then their lead became insurmountable simply because of the growth of the market. Now, if you look at getting closer to Facebook, now we'll creep up on it. Social networking type services had a similar sort of uh, history. So in the beginning, you had things like BBSs that you would dial into and connect to a modem, and you had listservs, right. and then you had stuff like Genie and CompuServe and Prodigy. Like everyone had some sort of online thing it wasn't the internet it was this place you connected to usually through a phone modem and there was but it was a social network you could see other people you could mail back and forth they had chat rooms there were you know topics of interest little uh, groups where you could talk about things that you know people are interested in uh you know uh, different subject matter uh, divisions right but again the winners of this these stages didn't really win much like just because CompuServe had, you know trounced prodigy and genie they got the biggest slice of a very, very tiny pie of people who had modems in their house and were willing yeah. to dedicate their loan phone line to it and everything. And, and this is an interesting part here. And then AOL came along, right? And AOL came at the time where the people online graph was kinking and doing that hockey stick thing, right? And then all of a sudden, the AOL discs were everywhere. And now, you know, your mom is online. And everybody is online. And it's like, this is, this is that moment when the, that everything takes off. You know, surely AOL will rule forever, right? Uh, but, and I'm sure AOL thought that too. Oh, yeah. But then the line kinked again. Because people didn't realize exactly how vertical the, the slope of this graph could get. The line <laughs> kinked again with the internet. 
It's like AOL. That everyone's on AOL. Yeah, but only the nerds are online at all. You know, the nerds' parents and the nerds' relatives. And it wasn't that. You know, once the internet came, then it was like, no, seriously, everybody, everybody's going to be online. <laughs> and AOL wasn't ready for that because they had built their empire on the we are our own online service, and we'll build a gateway to the internet for you or whatever. And they 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 got run over by by the internet basically. And then within the realm of the internet, it was like, let's start. All right, start over. New game. New game, guys. Forget about that other stuff. AOL just got trounced. The internet has come and run, steamrolled everybody. But now within the internet, let's see what we can do for this, you know, social networking society thing. So then you had like GeoCities where you could build your own page and Friendster and LinkedIn and Orkut and all sorts of stuff like that where everyone was trying to build a new social network on the new playing field where there's just where the stakes are much, much higher because everybody's in the internet in the entire world, right? Um, so a lot of those were too narrow, like... Flickr and stuff was never going to be the dominant social network just because it was focused on photos. Right? And some things like Google's Orkut, another example of Google kind of dropping the ball there. Yeah. Just I don't know what happened to that one. It just spun off into left field and now it's just all Brazilians on it or something. I forget, <laughs> I forget what countries Orkut is popular in, but it's massively popular in a few countries, but worldwide, not so popular. Yeah. Friendster, that's a sad story. You know, we all know what happened to them. LinkedIn is still around, but it's more focused on business. You know, um, When MySpace came along, it was kind of the like general purpose social network it was just a little tiny bit early right just a little little tiny bit early in the game so everyone was rushing to myspace and but it had the kind of that music focus come look at my band's page and stuff like that and people yeah. had myspace pages and uh, i think the attraction to all these things in the social network was let you communicate with people online without having uh, technical expertise like that's that's the pitch because everyone wants to do stuff online they want to show people pictures of their kids or talk to their friends or whatever it is they want to do but they don't want to have to know anything about, you know, technology to do it. They just want to click some buttons and just share with people. The same way you have social interactions in real life, you know. Um, so MySpace let people do that, but Facebook was, you know, right there with them, a little bit behind. And it was Facebook was slightly nicer than MySpace, like not as ugly, not as many flashy GeoCities looking <laughs> things in the yeah. place. It had more controlled growth because it was like confined to college students first and like slowly rolled out across the country, uh, and that that sort of built cachet for the, for the service. And it was just perfectly timed for like the MySpace backlash when people were kind of sick of MySpace. When it's like ugh, everyone's got a MySpace page and they're all annoying, and I go there and there's the animated stuff and yeah. music in the background, and I don't care about your stupid band, and I just want to share photos with people. And, and MySpace doesn't have enough features for you know, to let me do that. And you know, and Facebook said oh, we're the kinder, gentler alternative to that. Come over to us. And and they were a little bit later, and and that you know that was the the final kink where everyone is online. And like, I mean, look at Facebook's numbers now. I think they have like 500 million people, mm. 150 million people in the U.S. That's that's about half the U.S. population, and it's the majority of like the eligible population. Like, if you think about it, babies aren't on Facebook, and I think you're not allowed to sign them if you're not 13 years old or something. But Facebook's uh, victory, sort of like Microsoft's, was they got the biggest piece of a just humongous pie, and the pie's not going to get any bigger, really. Uh, you know, in the U.S., because once you've got more, once you've gone over more than half of the of the adult population is on Facebook, everything else is just you know icing on top of that. You've won more or less. Yeah. Um, so I don't think they should be afraid that there's another kink coming. But the the upshot of all these victories here is that the bad things about the victors become sort of entrenched or enshrined in the uh, in the businesses themselves so if you think about microsoft like they won the battle for the desktop they were everywhere right but every bad thing about microsoft was now like made official so 
so if they have any problems, they're a victim of their own success. You know, so the Windows everywhere was their strategy. And then, you know, it served them so well, they got Windows to go everywhere, right? But Windows everywhere is not a good strategy when the internet comes along. Mm-hmm. We're going to make the internet run on Windows and we can use Windows servers. Well, servers haven't really been our strength. And I don't know how come the internet really doesn't seem to need Windows. But no, no, Windows everywhere. So <laughs> kind of mostly missed the, the internet revolution there. Uh, and the same thing with mobile. Like mobile, that, I think mobile is the next big thing. Well, can, can we do Windows on mobile? I guess we can make Windows. We have Windows on tablets. We have Windows CE for consumer electronics. But, you know, Windows Mobile, see, it's right in the name. Windows Mobile. How about, how about Windows Phone? <laughs> you know, they, and and it does, it's not even a technology thing. It's just a mindset where, like, their, their platform that they had built that served them so well, the Windows API, Win32, getting all those developers and everything like that, it just... They couldn't apply that same stuff to the mobile space as well. And, you know, they, they just couldn't get over the hump. Maybe they will in the mobile and Windows phone. We'll see how that turns out. But so far, it's not going that well. And also, their enterprise entanglements. Like, so I like to call when you, when you have lots of demanding customers, like all these companies that have Windows PCs on their desks, they dictate to Microsoft more or less that, you know, you can't change too much too fast. Mm. And sometimes changing too much too fast is what you need to do to get onto the next big thing. So, this is our, you know, Microsoft became ossified in its, in its, uh, desktop victory state. Now, in Facebook's case, this is another complaint that you'd hear from nerds about Facebook is that is that it's too insular. That it's not really a participant in the web. You know what I mean? It's kind of like an AOL where like you go into Facebook and when you're in Facebook, there's a bunch of stuff in that world, but the outside web is a foreign thing. So you don't see lots of deep links into Facebook, right? Because you can't see this person's page unless you're a friend of them. So why bother giving a link? It's like a separate thing. It's kind of like going into AOL, where you log into AOL, and there's this world of keywords and these special things and whatever they're doing. And then there's the outside web. Well, in the web itself, there's the web, and then there's Facebook, which is this other little island that you're going into, right? I don't know if that's going to be a long-term problem. So far, it hasn't, but it definitely sort of defines what they're doing. You know, like, that's what Facebook is like. And if that ever becomes a real problem for them, I'm not sure they can turn turn that ship fast enough to say, no, no, seriously, we're a good web citizen. We have, you know, permanent URLs and everything, you know, your data, it's not just our data, it's your data. And you can see your Facebook comment anywhere for forever and you can search on it and so on and so forth versus once you're inside our walled garden, you just do whatever you do and we own all your data mm. and, uh, and you can't get to it from the outside. Uh, and the other thing is that they're free. So they've got the same situation as Google where the users are the product there and they're selling, they're making money somehow, but it's not from the users. People aren't paying to use Facebook. And again, so far that hasn't been a problem for online things. In fact, that seems to be the only way to go for mass market online things. But if it does become a problem, they're going to be in the same situation as Google where their, their customers are not the customers. And if someone figures out how to make the customers the customers, they're vulnerable to that. Now, what is Facebook vulnerable to? Are they vulnerable to a Netscape type of situation? Like Netscape came along and Microsoft freaked out and had that internet tidal wave memo yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And and they they put down Netscape, you know. They 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 put it out of its misery. They they rose to that challenge. They, you know, panic scrambled and then they got rid of Netscape more or less. Internet Explorer triumphed, right? So maybe Facebook can can fight off some challengers like that. But eventually, you know, they get you, right? So when Google came along, Microsoft really had no answer to that, right? And when Facebook faces its Google, maybe when it faces its Netscape, it might be able to to uh, be nimble about it. But when it faces its Google, perhaps not. Uh, and and that's basically like if I had to boil it down. I would say that Facebook just doesn't seem nimble. Right? 
it seems even less nimble than Microsoft was because Microsoft, for all of its problems, was willing to at least try to do what it takes. When the internet came along, they tried to turn the whole company as fast as they could and, yeah. and a reasonable job of it. And the same thing with mobile. They're trying to do that now. And I, like Facebook, you see all these complaints about Facebook, but they don't seem to change direction in response to the complaints. Maybe they think they don't have to. Maybe they're going in the right direction already, but they just don't seem like if they had any sort of serious challenger, they would be able to change direction. Now, just like Microsoft, there was no one who was going to dethrone Microsoft from the desktop, right? But that wasn't the challenge that it had to be worried about. It had to be worried about when it didn't matter that you own the desktop. And then what do you do? So eventually, this is this, this is the, probably, perhaps the weakest complaint about any company, or maybe until the next one. Eventually, Facebook will say, we are the victors of social networking, but then social networking won't matter and something else will. Uh, Twitter kind of looks a little bit like a Netscape to me, where they're like a challenger to Facebook because they're a different thing, but they're, they're not playing the same game as Facebook. Right? Maybe they're a Google too. I don't know. Uh, so far, I think Facebook tried to buy them once, but so far Twitter hasn't been a problem. But when, when, when Facebook's Google does come along, I have little faith that the company is going to be nimble enough to, to turn their little walled garden, everything is free, advertisers pay us to get access to our users' information, business model is going to survive. So that's Facebook. Are we ready how for long the next will one? That take, how long will that take? I don't, I don't know. It's like Microsoft had quite a reign, didn't they? It was like, you know, 10 years. Yeah, a long years. time. Right. So long, because, so long that it was almost unimaginable that they wouldn't be where they are. Yeah, it, and that's, that's the network effect. Like when you build up that many people, when the majority of, of eligible people in the United States are, are using your service, no challenger is going to come from behind right. and swamp you in some massive victory. What's going to happen is that your victory will, not, will become less important. And the, the game will change, and the game will be someplace else, and no one will care that everyone is on Facebook. Right. Uh, so I think that's what will happen. Some, someone will eventually come up with something that's better than Facebook enough and different enough that people start using that and just slowly realize that they've stopped using Facebook because they're using this new thing. Uh, but that could be a while. Now, the third one, you didn't say in the last episode what the third company was. Yes. Now, I know what it is because it's in the notes and we sort of talked about it, but we a bunch of people were trying to guess. They were sort of guessing, and a, 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 a very few people actually identified what it is. So it's been a mystery for at least for a week, if not more, for people. What is the third company? Uh and before you say it, let's say thanks to Worldview. This is a new and totally addictive take on email reporting from a Campaign Monitor. Basically, when you send a newsletter, they will show you on a map in real time whenever somebody opens it, when they click on a link, when they forward it to a buddy. Okay, but get this. They also show you who is liking your email on Facebook. Perfect you know, to mention that here, but also on Twitter. And again, on a map, the moment that it happens, exact moment that it happens, the moment somebody mentions it, clicks it, links it, forwards it, whatever, you see this on a map. And here's the best part. It's free for every email campaign that you send. And you can check out a demo of this at campaignmonitor.com slash worldview. One word like that. Pretty cool. All right. Company number three. You know, I was surprised. Anybody in the chat room now want to want to throw out what they think it is? Because this is going to surprise. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. I like seeing people's guesses because it gave me new ideas for other companies to think about. <laughs> One of my favorites was Dropbox. 
Like that's 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 the thing that interested me. You can you throw out a company and then I can't think of anything bad about them, right? Uh, Dropbox I had to think a little while though. We're not talking. Dropbox is not the company. No, a uh, bunch of people seeing, are saying Amazon and and Twitter and and you know Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft. It's hard to think about things that are bad about Microsoft. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, that's not that's not a challenge. I, this is this is the kind of thing that people who hear what you're about to say are likely going to just turn the show off because you're hitting you're hitting it. An they would area never turn the show off because they want to hear. The they want soul. their ideas challenged. This company is the soul, the very no. backbone of uh, of of America. Zappos had a, that's a good one. Zappos is a good guess. I'm Nothing. not in, I'm not into Zappos, but everyone seems to love it. I don't think I've ever even bought anything from it. But. So far in the chat room, nobody has gotten it yet. Let's 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 uh let's lower the the, the hatchet. Let's uh, let them have. All right. It. So the, this this is the biggest challenge in company that you can think of something. What's the what's the what's wrong with this company? Nothing's uh, the wrong. Big with challenge it. for me is Pixar. No. Have you ever heard nothing's anyone wrong say with Pixar? About, have you ever heard anyone say anything bad about Pixar? The, the, this company is the heart and soul of everything that's right with America. There's nothing wrong with them. How dare you? And it's just another Steve Jobs company, right? Now, think about Apple. You'll have no problem finding people who can say something that's wrong about Apple, right? That's Steve Jobs' baby, you know, but you can find – it's too, you can't throw a rock on the internet without somebody that hates Apple. But then look at this other company, Pixar. Can you find anybody who's ever said anything bad about Pixar? Anything and Pixar tr- it's not because they haven't tried. But here, here, John, I'll, t- I'll tell you something bad about Pixar. This is horrible. This is something they should be totally ashamed of, is that the graphics in Toy Story 1 weren't as good as they were in Toy Story 2. And the ones in Toy Story 2 weren't as good as the graphics in Toy Story 3. I mean, shame on them. Horrible company. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's the type of stuff. You can only, you can only Terrible. make Terrible. And this, this is Such not like I was company. trying to. I didn't come at this as a, I'm trying to think of a company that is so good that I can't think of anything wrong with it. This came to me in the opposite direction, as things always do. I was, I forget what I was thinking about. I, was, I saw, I saw a tweet, and it made me think about Pixar, and it made me realize that, that they have a weakness, which is shocking because every other thought I've ever had about Pixar was the how wonderful they are and how perfect they are. Right. So again, I, this is not trying to say that the pixar is a horrible company pixar is perhaps the best company in the entire universe <laughs> so what's why which is why what's wrong think, with them you think of one thing that's wrong i'm trying to think of what you're gonna i'm trying to think of what you're gonna say yeah it's and again like my facebook one was weak it's like oh well they'll be so dominant that uh yeah. <laughs> that eventually they'll miss the next big thing like that's pretty weak already uh this may be even weaker and less convincing. Are you going to say that it's because they and people in the chat room are? This was the one thing I had thought of, and this is what people in the, the chat room are saying. Is it because of their? Uh, I guess Disney owns them, or their relationship with Disney. Is that it? That's a good guess, actually, because that's the fear of like you know, oh, when Disney takes over, they'll do, make bad decisions. But right. I think it was kind of a reverse takeover where Pixar Pixar took over Disney Animation. <laughs> sure, does seem like it from kind a of like next. Standpoint. You know, Apple bought next, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> next to them. so right I, for now i'm i'm not worried about that uh now here's here's the tweet this the tweet actually came from i wish you would tell us how to pronounce his name horace did do asimco asimco.com that guy yeah he's great he tweeted this and this this triggered this thought process his tweet was uh pixar developed the process to engineer art apple developed the process to make art out of engineering and that's just you know it's a nice tweet about Two Steve Jobs companies and their and their different approaches. One is in the world of creativity, and they brought technology to bear. And Apple's in the world of technology, and they brought creativity to bear. And it's it's Steve Jobs' thing that he puts up that street sign, the intersection of liberal arts and technology. You know, right. he's done that for the past couple of years. Uh, and this was a little encapsulation of that. And it reminded me of 
something that, that I saw. Uh, it was a talk from uh, Ed Catmull in 2007 to the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, I put the link in the show notes. Uh, and I just want to do a sidebar on the show notes because I know sometimes when I listen to podcasts and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. No one has any idea how the heck to get to the show notes because you're listening to a podcast and you're doing whatever. You're jogging or, you know, you're walking around and you have headphones on. You have no idea. Like, can I remember the, the name of the show? Where is the, the URL of the site? Uh, how do I get to the show notes? And by the time you get back to the computer, you're forgotten. So here for the people who keep hearing us, hearing us refer to the show <laughs> notes and have no idea where they are, this is where it is. It's the number five by5.tv slash hypercritical. Right. 5by5.tv slash hypercritical. And that will list all the episodes. You click on one of the episodes and you will see the show notes. Yeah, just go to the episode that you were listening to if you know it. And we have descriptions up there of each episode. So if you weren't sure which was the one where John was talking about which companies were the bad ones, it'll be there right in the description. So some some reading will be involved if you're not sure of the number. But we also do say the number at the top of the show. Yeah, I already but, said but this the thing episode. Is, I, don't, I don't know if people know that you have to go to 5by5.tv. Like, you know, they mm. go to hypercritical.com or they try to click through on iTunes. So just but there they, it is. 5by5.tv yeah, slash hypercritical, you will find the show notes. And I say this because this Ed Catmull speech, Ed Catmull is one of the founders of Pixar. Uh, this talk that he gave, it's really long. He talks slowly and he looks like your dad, right? <laughs> I Take the time out to watch this thing. I think it's like an hour long or whatever. It is really long, and you think you're going to be bored. But if you find this podcast remotely interesting, I think you will, you will get tremendous value out of watching this. So you should watch this, this very long video of Ed Catmull talking. And he talks about the founding of Pixar, but mostly about how Pixar faced its challenges. Like when Pixar had many trials and tribulations that from the outside you would not imagine that they had because we just see the results, and the results are wonderful, these great movies, right? But he talks about how... How did this happen? How did this company make these great movies time and time again? And what are the problems that it faced and how did it address them? And the reason I thought of it is because that tweet was saying, you know, that Pixar developed a process to engineer art. And Ed Catmull's talk talks about that process. He's an engineer. Uh, he, he was, you know, a, t- a technical guy, not a business guy, uh, who just became a, a, te- a business guy because he was the founder of the company. And he took a technical approach to to doing business stuff, you know? It's like... Let's find uh, something that went wrong, think of a solution for it, and then formalize the solution to prevent the problem from happening again. So you're trying to ratchet your company up. So every time there's a problem, address it, formalize the solution, and, you know, and make that part of your process. And, they want, and, that, and that's what engineers want. They want a repeatable process. Right? They, don't, they don't want touchy-feely kind of let the artist do his work because that's not predictable. Process is predictable. And an engineering approach is to say, look – if our process is not producing things that we that our creatives find are good, the process is broken. So let's adjust the process. Now, let's see how I can come with this. So, this approach produces all the movies that we've seen, these Pixar movies, and it, it just it it's kind of a triumph of engineering to say that you can engineer creativity by taking an engineering approach to something that used to be purely within the realm of emotion stuff like t- like take motion out of the equation and and this in the ed catmull speech you'll see lots of situations where they threw away a tremendous amount of work they had done which you know is not what artists will want to do they will fight for their creation forever uh and, but you know they're taking a, a dispassionate engineering approach and saying no we have to throw this out it's not good enough let's try again right mm-hmm. That's a Steve Jobs approach, getting back to the criticism thing of just not letting anything that's not good enough out the door. The key thing is not that Pixar is amazingly wonderful about doing everything. They're just amazingly wonderful about killing anything that's not 
good, right? It's the opposite approach. It's that they, they have the same failures as everybody else. They just do not let the failures out the door. Um, so that's, that's their approach to this. But what this approach, I think, gives you is a, a studio like Pixar, which I would say that their overall average of, of product is better than anyone else's. I can't think of another movie studio or yeah. another another entity that has produced a higher average quality. You know, it's just movie after movie after movie. Did you average them together? Just head and shoulders above everybody else. But what I was thinking about is uh, John Lasseter. Another was he a founder of Pixar? He was one of the early creatives brought in, and now he's uh, he's a big wig at Pixar. Right. I forget what his title well, he's, is. Well, he's been running it for a long time for de facto running it. Right, because you know his jobs isn't there because he's at Apple or whatever. Um, so Lasseter is running things, and he's a creative, right? And his hero that he talks about all the time, one of his his animation heroes is uh, Miyazaki, the Japanese animator. And and this, and I'm also a Miyazaki fan. And I thought about this. I thought if you were to ask John Lasseter, would he say that any Pixar movie is as good or better than his favorite Miyazaki movie? Mm. And the, if you think about Miyazaki's work, the average quality of Miyazaki movies, I would say, is like not up to Pixar standards. There, you know, there are like throwaway ones and duds here and there. Yeah, but I think the peaks of Miyazaki's work are higher than the peaks of any of Pixar's work, and I think it's because Pixar's approach to engineering is preventing them from ever having big failures, but also preventing them from having a transcendent success to the heights of the best of Miyazaki. Mm. And I'm wondering if you, even if you ask John Lasseter, the, the Pixar guy, would he, would he agree? Would he say that he has matched his hero in any particular way uh, in any movie? And would, would he say that he has surpassed his favorite? You know? So I think this, this approach to engineering art, the advantage is you get a consistently good product. The disadvantage may be that you can never get that highest high because I think to get the highest high, you have to be willing to have the big failures. You have to be willing to have the riskier divergences that don't fit within your past experience. Your past experience is telling you this is not good. Do not let it out the door. Everything that has made you have a series of hit movies, one after the other, all of that you know, knowledge and experience is telling you do not let this happen because this will be bad. And that is killing the more sort of divergent, interesting ideas before they, you know, they get out the door. Now, if you watch the Ed Catmull speech, he talks about this. This is obviously the engineering approach is to acknowledge that this is a fact that, that a process can stifle creativity. So we have to let people, you know, bring in new blood, bring in fresh people. Don't shoot down ideas just because they're not what we haven't done before. But I have to think that that approach that, that, that when I see this, num- this many consistently good movies coming out, it makes me think there's, <laughs> there's a sickness in the company that is not going to let them, ever have the transcendent success because I think to have the transcendent success you have to be allow for the big failures and the fact they haven't had a big failure makes me think that that's a problem with their process hmm. now, so you almost you would almost feel better about Pixar if they had had a big failure like yeah do something ambitious really really ambitious and have it fall on its face right and because you would think after this period of time it's not like you expect their second movie to be bad but after this period of time surely there, you know, you're not taking enough risks if you're not if you're never failing, right? Mm. And, and this this gets back to, uh, to to his speech too. One of the things he talks about in the speech is like like what I'm saying is it, it's not like I'm saying Pixar is horrible or doomed or anything like that. It's the exact opposite of that, right? But it doesn't mean that this one thing I had to dig out, this tiny little nugget I had to dig out of, you know, it's so hard to think of anything wrong with Pixar. It doesn't mean that this is any less dire than any more obvious thing that's wrong with other companies. Uh, and as Ed Catmull says in the speech, success hides problems. 
And the more successful you are, the bigger problems you can hide. So the fact that I that this never occurred to me until I got triggered by that engineering art phrase and that thing doesn't mean that this is not a real problem, and it doesn't mean that this problem may actually is not, is small. It might be a big problem because they've had such massive success, and the more successful you are, the more it hides problems like that. Now you could con you know you can, uh, my thing is like how long can Pixar continue like this? How long can Pixar possibly make? the same great movies over and over again. Like, will they ever fail? And, and at a certain point, the culture of the company becomes make sure we don't have a failure instead of make sure the next movie is just the best movie we ever made. I don't know if they're at that point yet. What I hear from inside, you know, Pixar about their plans and everything, it sounds to me like they know that this is an issue and they're actively working to fight it. Like when they brought in Brad Bird for The Incredibles, for example. Yeah. Like, they know that they need to do this. They know, like, make our next movie completely unlike any movie we've ever made before. You know, bring in new people to do it. People who are not constrained by the, the ideas of our previous movies. But, yeah, like I said, the fact that I don't see any big flops, the fact that I don't see any super ambitious product, uh, you know, that falls on its face makes me think they're not risking enough. But so, but if you look at, if you look at what they did with Toy Story 1, that was, that was that risk. That movie. Oh yeah, definitely. The first one is you know is is the big risk. You know, so you're, you're just years, saying they're you know, not evolving. They're not continuing to push the envelope in yeah, some so, new way. So what would that look like? What would a big risk look like? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, if big it, risk would be, for example, and again, you don't say you have to do any of these things. I'm just trying to think of things that would be divergences. So a big divergence would be a movie that's not for kids. Obviously, they, they did The Incredibles. That was PG, but the, seriously, a, a movie for adults. You know, another risk would be a movie in a in a genre that they've that they've never done before, like trying to do photorealism. Not because that, that that's what you should do because animation is bad, but just because it's the opposite of what they've done so far. And all these may be bad ideas, but if some if someone has some inspiration to do something great based on one of these ideas, I wouldn't. I would like to see that idea run with instead of, you know, tried but then you know thrown away because it wasn't good enough or or reworked or just, you know, we want to put out a solid product, but we're not willing to risk you on your, you know, there's at some point there's going to be someone who has some crazy idea that's so good, but that everyone in Pixar disagrees with. Right. And I would like to see that guy given a chance to do what he wants, despite the fact that everyone thinks it's going to be a disaster, just in case it's something amazing. When you've got a single guy like Miyazaki, I think he has a, a higher level of control there and he can do his duds where he's like, I'm really into, you know, cats and I'm going to do a movie about that. No, it's not great. <laughs> uh, you know, so he has hits and misses. That's what an individual is like. But an organization sort of smooths out the lumps. Um, but I want to see those lumps. I want to see the lumps that stick up. I'm not so interested in the, in the valleys that go down, the, the duds. I'm not saying I need to have a bad movie. You know, I want to see those peaks that poke out. And, and I think you need to have the valleys to get the peaks. How dare you? Yeah. I, you know, like I would never have said this three years ago, four years ago, but Pixar has been around for a long time now and it's just... Some people in the chat room brought Cars 2. I know nothing about Cars 2, and I suspect that Pixar's magic is that even though you think Cars 2 is going to be dumb and it's just a sequel and it's got a 2 in the title, they do what no one else does and you make a good sequel. Like Toy Story 2 is fantastic. Toy Story 3 was fantastic. And movies with numbers after them are supposed to get worse and be horrible, and they're not. Because of Pixar's process, they're not. But Cars 2 does not make me think this is going to be the transcendent, most amazing movie that Lasseter is finally going to agree is better than his favorite Miyazaki movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I hear you there, and I actually am. I, I've seen previews of Cars too. I'm not. I'm not in love with it. 
but I don't I don't feel like that qualifies as being a flop because it it doesn't strike me as a movie that's taking a risk. And we don't know. I mean, I think when they when they say they're making Toy Story two, it's like, oh, you can't do that, man. Toy Story one was just so perfect. Why do you have to go and make a sequel? But if they have something new and interesting to say, you can do a sequel well. But it's really difficult for a sequel to sort of break through and 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 reach new heights. Uh, sequels can be better than the original. Like I think Toy Story two in many ways is better than Toy Story one. Uh, and some people would make the same argument for three, but it's not like an order of magnitude better. Whereas if somebody wants to do like an adult murder mystery in, in, in CG, uh, that, and, it, and it's fantastic. And it, like it wins the Academy Award for best picture above live action movies or something like that's the type of victory that I'm talking about now that is not going to happen uh, if they're not willing to take the risk of just falling on their face. And, the re- and again, the reason I think they're not taking the risk of falling on their face is because they haven't over such a long period of time. Surely if they were risking falling on their face, they would have done it by now. Law of averages, right? Maybe. Maybe. No. I think I'm more optimistic about them than you are. It's not. No. I, and again, I don't think that this is, you know, Pixar is doomed. But, you know, nothing is so perfect, right? Well, that's true. You really I, I, again. I would encourage everybody to watch that Ed Catmull talk because it's just fantastic. Is it, so is it in the show notes? It is in the show notes. Watch so the here's video. A, here's another thing. Here's another thing you can do if you're a big fan and you want show notes and you don't want to be bothered to go to the website. You can subscribe to any one of these feeds. You you have to go to the website once to get the URL for them. But once you do that, you can subscribe to them in your in your newsreader, whatever that is whatever app or, or platform you want to use. And the show notes are, are in there, and your newsreader should be smart enough not to try to download the, uh, the MP3 file attachment, but it'll just show you the notes, the full notes with links and text and everything right in there. So you don't even have to go to the website. Although I, you, didn't even know, I didn't even know this. Sure. I was going to the website. So, well, you, you should go to the website, but subscribe uh, and in, in your newsreader, and you'll see them right there. That, that's because this room. is a, a custom solution that I wrote myself. That's why there's so many uh, uh, options, and that's also why there's so many little bugs. Well, you'll fix those. Eventually. Someone in the chat room was saying that Up and Wally are examples of the of the big risks, and I guess it just so happens that they they succeeded. Uh, so, if you think about those two movies, what was risky about Wally? Well. Everyone cites the beginning part where there's no dialogue and everything as as it's risky how you can keep kids' attention. But you know, kids are entertained by puppet shows where the puppets don't talk. So I don't I don't think it's a risk to do physical comedy to kids and, mm. and keep their attention. And I would say that the the larger story, the larger ecological save the planet story on Wally was kind of ham fisted. Not that I'm not a fan of Wally, but I I'm not as impressed by that. Uh it, it wasn't it wasn't as subtle as uh I thought it should have been up. I guess the risk there is the main, your main character is an old guy, but then they put in the cute kid anyway. So there was someone for the little kids in the audience to relate to. Yeah. And the risk is showing that sequence that ends on a sad note. Uh, I'm not sure how devastated children were by that opening segment. Now everyone's going to tell me right into their kid cried during that part, but it was, I think it was more devastating to people who can relate to the idea of being married and, you know, Growing old kids and, and stuff like that, yeah. right? So adults have more of a line into that thing, even if the kids cried about it too, because they didn't like it when the the, the old lady died. Uh, but that was that was more aimed at the adults. So I don't think that was a risk to do something like that because I didn't think kids were going to leave 
that not that I didn't think it was a risk. Obviously, it was a risk, but it wasn't the type of we may fall on our face completely risk because I think if you told anyone you were going to do that, they would say, yeah, I can see how that can work because the kids, you know, won't be too devastated by it. They won't leave the theater crying in tears, but the parents will be drawn in and then we've got them for the rest of the movie. Mm. It's easy to explain why that's going to work. It's not as easy to explain why you think, you know, I don't know. Let me think of another crazy idea for, for Pixar. I keep going back to photorealism simply because they haven't done it. And everyone says that's a horrible idea. Like, do not do photorealism. There's no point in it. And the strength of animation is that it doesn't look like real life. Just do mm-hmm. not do it. But, you know, that that's that's a pick for, you know, whatever you need to do that. And then do an adult genre, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, can you think of a genre that would be the exact opposite of what Pixar has done? I picked murder mystery, but that might be too close. Gosh, that's a tough question. Uh, a, a photorealistic CG movie about the Holocaust. Let's bring up the Holocaust <laughs> again because listeners love when I bring it up. <laughs> like do, Schindler, Schindler's do. List, you know, it, it, from Pixar, right? Yeah. They would say, this is, this is the worst idea ever. Yeah. First of all, you're doing it photorealistic. What the heck is the point? Why don't you just do it with live action actors? And second of all, doing, an, doing anything having to do with the Holocaust in animation is insulting to the actual, like, it is a terrible idea and they would never let that idea go through and it is the exact opposite of what they do. And maybe it is a terrible idea. Maybe that idea would fall on its face. But these are the type of, I'm trying to think of the worst possible idea ever. These are the type of ideas that someday someone's going to have one of those ideas. How about, how about the, the Godfather? Yeah, there you go. Like a uh, organized crime drama. Yeah. For adults only, rated R. Not, not a Yakuza thing. It has to be in the American mob. Yeah, yeah. It's too Yakuza's much. been done in, in animation and it's been great. Yeah, so maybe that'll come. I, what, is, what is Pixar's uh, next project? I forget. I think it's a mob film for adults only. No, it was. Every time I hear what the next film is going to be, I'm surprised. So it shows that they are innovating but it, the fact that they have never ever failed makes me suspect of this whole engineering art thing so what's next week's topic gonna be oh i gotta pull up the page let's see what we got here take your time we're getting down to just the ones that you don't want to pick <laughs> then you have to pick one no, I I know you want the the third one because you've picked it many times before, but I just don't have that much to say about it. Well, maybe we do that, and then we talk about uh, we talk about toasters the rest of the time. Toasters, I feel like I have to prep for. That's a serious, that's a serious topic. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, maybe you could put some work into the show. And by the way, for the people who have brought this up, to- I'm st- speaking specifically about toaster ovens. When I just say toasters, I mean the toaster oven. I'm You're not, not talking about the kind where you you put. I'm the not toast talking about slot toasters, which may also stink too, but I just don't use them we can talk i could talk about those enough to cover for it yeah we'll see well i'll I'll, i may add items to the list okay and we just did a non-tech show so we're not i can't yell at you about your cult diets or anything like that right well i can but we'll do that off the air indeed all right so i guess guess that's it for this one you don't want to you don't want to say what we're doing next week we'll leave it a mystery they don't need to know yeah, and, and also for this this format of what's wrong with X, they're all jackals anyway. Those people. I may have other. We may come back to this. This may be a regular thing, you know, in a couple of weeks. If I decide what's wrong with you know, if I decide I want to do what's wrong with Dropbox, or if people have suggestions for companies or anything like that, because I like like thinking about this. The more popular the company, the more beloved, the more interesting it is. Yeah. And hey, we can always do encryption. Oh, we got to do that. We got to do that. Got to do it. 
someday. In the meantime, everyone's data will be mercifully unencrypted. <laughs> All right. So go to 5x5.tv. You can hear previous episodes of this show. You can see the show notes. You can listen to other shows uh, that are there. Love to have you go there. And of course, please rate the show. You have to rate it and review it for John to be happy with you yeah. in, in you iTunes. No, no comments. So I need, I need comments somewhere. And uh, Syracuse on Twitter. Accent on the A. Well, you don't have the accent, Mark. We can work on that. Syracuse on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We'd like to thank you for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, felttip.com. That's uh, makers of Sound Studio 4 and campaignmonitor.com slash worldview. Thanks very much to them. Thanks for you for listening. We'll see you all again next week. Mm-hmm.